Eyes are the windows to the soul. Or so it's been said. These peepers are a major way many of us engage with the world in which we live. From sharing vulnerability and connecting intimately, to challenging each other in the same way our animal kingdom mates might before a hierarchy rumble, and so aptly seeing red, our eyes have a big impact on our lives, histories, and experiences. But what happens when these spheres of mystery are used in, well, unexpected ways? Like on cow butts? Welcome. I'm Rocket Fox. Join me as we embrace the strange. on cow butts, you may be asking yourself, and trust me, I understand. Are these real, functioning eyes? Why cows? Why butts? To answer these questions, first, we need to travel to Botswana, where livestock farming isn't just a profession, but an integral piece of culture. From an article I found on Reuters Online, an interviewed farmer named Mokweba stated, Livestock farming is my culture and tradition as a Motswana. And indeed, cow hides have been used as a traditional clothing for chiefs, as well as dance attire for men, women, and children. Additionally, cows themselves have historically been used as payment for things such as weddings and burials. Now, in the past 10 years, the number of cattle have drastically fallen, we're talking 2.5 million in 2011 to 1.7 million in 2015. Granted, the number of households raising cattle have also fallen. There have also been climate change-induced droughts, causing harsher raising conditions as time goes on. This being in addition to all of the other perils of raising cattle in Africa. One of which is predators. Now, it's one thing to protect a herd from wolves or coyotes. It's another to have to ward off hungry lions. And while it may be hard to blame these hugely majestic felines when happening upon a free burger buffet, the farmers, equally understandably, do what they can to keep their cattle safe. However, while these big cats may seem a sheer force of terrifying nature to be reckoned with, it turns out the African lion population actually has its own struggles. In fact, it's been listed as a vulnerable species, with numbers that have dropped from over 100,000 in the 90s to between 23 to 39,000 today. Which is a big part of why when Dr. Neil Jordan found out about farmers having killed two lionesses in retaliation for preying on local cows in the Botswanan village where he was based, he began thinking of solutions. Where 
saw it's West Side Story What I saw it's just alright What I saw it's West Side Story What I saw it's just alright As a conservation biologist with the University of New South Wales Center for Ecosystem Science, which is an admitted mouthful, Dr. Jordan was well aware that lions are ambush hunters, a tactic that anyone will be familiar with who has owned a cat, or watched an online video of a cuddly feline freezing while in the camera's shot, yet somehow getting closer every time the prey up camera person looks away. In terms of our clever doctor, as he considered various strategies, the answer came one day when he witnessed a lion hunting an impala. All was going well for the big hungry kitty, until the much bigger antelope happened to notice its stalker. With its cover blown, the lion, who didn't really want to eat that guy anyway, abandoned that particular prey. The answer was practically staring him in the face. Eyes. As Dr. Jordan thought more on it, it seemed to make an odd amount of sense. After all, various species of butterflies, for one, were known to use eye-like markings on their wings as a defense against predators. It seems that even humankind had done a dry run of this very sort of test. In India, during the late 80s, Fishers, scientists, and forestry workers donned human face masks on the backs of their heads to cut down on tiger attacks, an effort that seemed to work. Dr. Jordan gave the idea a full try in 2015, calling it iCow, a la iPhone, in which he and fellow researchers stamped large, angry eyes on either side of the rumps of a third of a 62-cow herd, then waited to see what happened. During the 10-week study, three unpainted cows ended up being attacked and killed by lions. All the while, all of the painted butts stayed intact. Excitingly, this initial single-herd study began in 2015, but... As of mid-August of 2020, a larger, four-year study was published with some really interesting results. During this time, 2,061 cows from across 14 herds participated, in which they were divided into three categories. Painted butt eyes, two crosses in place of the butt eyes, or nothing at all. After their decoration session, the animals were left to go about business as usual, foraging, cud chewing, and sleeping safely in their predator-safe enclosures at night, all to repeat the next day. Over the course of the four years, of the 683 cows with backside peepers, none succumbed to predators, while four of the crisscross bum and 15 of the 835 en natural bovine became predatory snacks. Now, Dr. Jordan and fellow researchers do have some remaining concerns. For example, if an entire herd had eyes on their butts, would the lions figure out the ruse? After all, these studies so far have contained a mix of I-butt and no I-butt cows commingling. Still, 
He's hopeful that the iCow will become more widely used and, more importantly, an affordable tool in a still unfortunately small number of non-lethal ways for dealing with predators to livestock. You're dusty, you're dusty It's a really cool, innovative, and uniquely simple way of tackling an important challenge that affects not only livelihood, but culture and tradition. However, lions and big cats aren't the only ones to respond to the illusion of an eye. As I mentioned in the beginning, we humans hold the gaze in high regard as well, so it's no surprise that should someone unfortunately suffer an injury or defect to the eye, many times they would want something as a convincing replacement. Enter the artificial eye. Evidence and records of artificial eyes have been documented dating back for thousands of years. However, the proclaimed earliest and, by my humble opinion, most badass instance comes from 5,000 years back and was discovered when excavating an ancient necropolis in Shar-e-Sokhta, or the Burnt City, in what is now Iran. The unearthed skeleton was that of a Persian priestess standing at 6 foot, or 1.82 meters tall, and the eye found on the skull was made of a lightweight mixture of natural tar and animal fat and covered, yes, in gold, engraved with decorative lines that radiated outward from the iris. Again, bad ass. It was drilled on either side with small holes in which a thread was attached to hold it in place. Of course, sadly, one does not wear an eyeball made of tar and animal fat covered in gold without some repercussions. Analysis of the remains suggested that she may have developed an abscess due to constant contact of the eye on her skin. So don't get too excited about creating your own golden eye to sport. There are other versions of externally worn artificial eyes documented throughout ancient Egypt, Greece, and Rome. However, a big change came with a French surgeon, Ambroise Père, who lived from 1510 to 90. He was the first said to really describe in detail the use of artificial eyes while making both in-socket, or hyperblephora, and external, or ekblephora, eyes. Building them from porcelain, glass, and enameled gold and silver one can only imagine that these must have been real works of art. In the 16th century, during the golden age of Italian glassmaking, Venice became a major producer of the first ocularists, which is a word I now love. These Venetian eyes were the first to be worn behind the eyelid. However, they were shaped like thin glass shells so had sharp edges and didn't restore the volume of the eye socket. These eyes had to be taken out at night to avoid being broken. A scenario that, I'm not going to lie, distresses me viscerally, but they also had to be removed because they were just understandably uncomfortable. 
As time went on, more of Europe joined the excellence of these artificial eyes, and by the 19th century, Germany was the center of eyeglass production. An important figure to emerge during this time was Ludwig Müller-Uri, who, while initially a maker of doll's eyes, collaborated with his nephew Frederick Müller-Uri in 1868 to develop cryolite, a new form of glass that was smoother and more resistant to tears, allowing it to last much longer than former artificial eyes. After 20 years of tweaking, Ludwig perfected his design, at which point he switched occupations, making the jump into full-time ocularist. Glass eyes remained, like the creations of Ambroise works of individualized art, that were highly specialized and expensive. In 1880, Hermann Snellen, a Dutch eye surgeon, made the next leap with the reform eye design. His eye was a thicker, hollow glass with, thankfully, rounded edges that were not only more comfortable, but helped to restore socket volume. Only a few years later, the first glass sphere was utilized, which not only restored volume, but allowed for movement. Then came World War II. In 1939, and with it the loss of access to Germany's glass and its glass eyes. Not to be deterred, the United States government commissioned stateside companies to find solutions. However, it was a group of U.S. Army dental technicians that made the first plastic artificial eye. There were some issues, though, including a back that wasn't completely polished, leading to irritation and a poor fit. German-American glassblowers learned to use the reform design on the plastic material, which improved this initial step, but still left room for improvement. Still, there was a demand. So much so that ocularists were overwhelmed and some companies began to mass-produce the 12 most commonly used glass eye shapes, called stock eyes. As you can imagine, not being properly fitted to the individual sockets had its drawbacks, but it was still better than nothing. In the late 60s, Lee Allen, an American ocularist, developed the modified impression method in which an impression is taken of the socket, a wax cast is made of the impression, and modifications are then made to the front of the wax model. It's a method commonly used today and helped reliably duplicate the shape of the socket to ensure a proper fit. There are, additionally, a few ASMR quality videos online that show the process of artificial eyes today being made, which I would highly recommend checking out because even to this day, it really remains an art. Matching a prosthetic eye to the other eye, as well as the inclusion of all of the blood vessels, the colors, and beyond is really spectacular to behold. Now, replacing an eye with an artificial eye is pretty amazing, but I became curious whether or not it was possible to replace an eye with, well, an eye. Launching eyes. Do you love me with your cold blank stare? Well, she's got eyes can look right through me. You may be familiar with a corneal transplant, 
which is when a damaged or diseased cornea, the clear front layer of the eye, is removed and replaced with another. Surprisingly, the first recorded corneal transplant involving a human was recorded in 1838. I say involving a human because, as with many forays through science, animals were the first to have their corneas messed around with. Now, I say involving a human because this first corneal transplant was a xenograft, meaning cross-species. Unshockingly, for a myriad of reasons, it was not a success. The first successful and human-to-human -human corneal transplant occurred in 1905 by Edouard Zerm, 49 years before the first successful solid organ transplant, which, for the curious, was a kidney. While corneal is the most common eye-related transplant I came across, I did happen upon amniotic membrane transplant. This is an intriguing process in which doctors actually use the amniotic membrane, or innermost layer of a donated human placenta, post-childbirth, to heal the cornea. The doctor creates either a temporary or permanent bandage on the surface of the eye that helps to heal and regenerate damaged tissue. That's pretty magical, if you ask me. <laughs> as far as whole eye transplants, the science is still out, though working hard to bring it back in. In 2014, the United States Department of Defense awarded $1.25 to a team comprised of researchers and scientists from University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine, Harvard University, and the University of California, San Diego, after having completed successful full-eye transplants on small animals. In the meantime, there are certainly technologies that have helped bridge vision gaps in pretty significant and incredible ways, such as Neil Harbison, the first legally recognized cyborg who has an antennae implanted in his skull using vibrations to allow him to essentially hear the colors he would otherwise be blind to. Another fantastic integration of technology is the use of VR headsets to give, quote, normal sight back to people who are visually impaired or losing their sight by the combination of augmented and virtual reality, working with cameras that project the feed onto the working parts of the user's retina to simulate improved vision. While these solutions are certainly more complex than painting eyes on a cow's behind, what they have in common is ingenuity, problem-solving, and the constant drive to improve. As we saw with the evolution of the artificial eye and the continual pursuit to improve upon medical ocular science, we will continue to strive for a better life for ourselves and the world around us, cows and lions alike. And that is the real window to the soul. Thank you so much for joining me on today's adventure through the Fantastically Strange. This is my very first episode, and I am beyond thrilled to be bringing it to you. 
so many thanks to all of my support and community, including Constance Hermit, the amazing artist who created the fantastic artwork behind the logo, and the Eternal Magical Badasses Cruise Machine, the artist behind our theme. Be sure to check them out on social media. You know you want to. I hope that you've enjoyed our journey. You can find links to all of the sources I used in my research in the show's notes, including all of the additional sound effects and music. Be sure to like and subscribe on your favorite podcasting sites. If you have any questions, topics you'd like to see covered, or to just say hi, please email fantasticallystrange at rockatfox.com. To learn more about my work, this podcast included, visit me online at rockatfox.com. If you would like to show your support, as well as get early access to episodes, bonus content, and other goodies related to my other work, visit patreon.com slash rocketfox. Thanks again, and I can't wait to see you next time. Take care of yourself.